next, I would like to thank everyone for being here. I really appreciate seeing all of you. And as always, uh, appreciate your continued generosity and support that allows us to continue to offer these practices globally, nationally, locally for free. So anything you can do to continue to support us is greatly appreciated as we uh, do our best to serve others and make these teachings available. So thank you. And to also just thank you for your participation. That goes a long way in creating a strong uh, environment for practice. Sukhazan asked me this morning about 10 minutes ago to give this talk or 15 minutes ago. So just thought it would be best to do mountains and rivers this morning. Um, I know most of you, for those of you I don't know, my name's Chiezan and i um, been living here at the monastery for the last 12 years about studying with Sokazan and uh, function as his Dharma heir and the prior of the Sukansu here at the monastery. So with that, I would be happy to respond to any questions that um, are showing up. I'm curious, curious what the most disappointing or like most disappointing aspect of meditation practice has been for you. Something stands out as it wasn't what you thought it was. I don't, I don't think meditation practice is what any of us thinks it is. And every one of us has our own story. And I would just say that similarly to the disappointing qualities of meditation, it's also when we stop uh, struggling with those, it's the most comfortable part of meditation, which is that you begin to see meditation is not an activity. It's not something that you do uh, as a form of exertion. There's mm -hmm. intention, intention to get to the cushion, intention to look at the mind, but um, the ease of the practice comes when you see that that's not an ex necessarily an activity that is forced upon your experience, that you actually just have an opportunity to sit there. It's the rest of our day, our rest of our life that is so uh, overwhelming with demand, cultural demand, self-imposed demand, communal, societal, economic, familial demand. Whereas in meditation, it's perhaps one of the only areas where you're being encouraged to just show up, to just be there, and there's no expectation for production. So the disappointment is that it's not necessarily a practice to be um, perfected or accomplished, but at the same time, the relief is that you actually can just be there and that's enough. I feel that as we begin to see that in meditation, as we begin to just show up for meditation, that type of training, which is so contrary to the other demands of the world, begins to permeate the rest of our life, where it's frightening because we don't know what to do, but the liberating part is we just show up, we just function, and that's something Sokuzan instructed me on years ago. It's, it's just function, and that is not defined by any standards. It is showing up in the midst of whatever is occurring and the vulnerability to receive and not come to any conclusions about it. Beyond Bowing, we call it our practice or a practice. What is what's practicing? Initially, I think that there's a lot that's practicing. We're we're confronting a paradigm, we're confronting another way of approaching our mind and our reality that is so contrary to every other form that we're taught as children. 
starting at an early age with how to behave and, and going to school and how to succeed, uh, accomplishing, acquiring. So there's a lot of practice in that we have to confront those expectations and see how impulsively we act out of them, that our relationship to the world is so conditioned that we don't even consider it or look at it. So the practices to begin to give attention to what we take for granted. I think what Sokazan points us to though, is that in the midst of that, there's no intention to get rid of. So that knee-jerk reaction, that impulse, that conditioning is not an obstruction if seen clearly, but when we don't see it clearly, we just go into autopilot and we just relate to the world out of our prejudice, no matter how subtle, no matter how innocent, no matter how much consensus there is around that prejudice, it's still a barrier between what is arising and the perception of what is arising. So the practices return to that intention over and over again, but we don't need to look for that intention to return into a result. It's not like the conditioning flops into non-conditional because then you've got another polarity it's much more uh, intimidating to the ego because of how uh, spacious it is that it really doesn't have any definitions so the practice is just returning to the intention return to look at whatever is showing up i think particularly beginning to see how we take things for granted or we just assume things and when i say things i just mean uh, an assumption of how to, to function an assumption of what is valuable, an assumption of what is good or bad or moral or just, that those all need a great deal of attention so that we function out of our insight and not our reaction to what is arising. Thank you. Further questions? Adriana. Don't have any sound again, Adriana. <laughs> Apologize. If it's something that can pop up in the chat box, I'll be back. Very good. Other questions? Paoshan uh, Bowen. Paoshan. What does it look like to function out of intention or insight, Bowen? In a sense, you don't have to function out of the intention. You just have to return to the intention. Because if we function out of, there's still some sort of mentality of fruition or gaining. So we return to the intention, which is very simply put, to see the truth or to function for the benefit of others. And so the intention is not prescribed activity. The exchange I come back to often is um, there was a Zen master in the early Tang dynasty. His name was Kuishan. And Kuishan is considered the founder of the first house of Zen, a descendant of uh, Matsu and Baijong and Huinang. And when he was asked by his student how to function, uh, he told his student, he says, I don't tell you how to act just to see clearly. And so I really appreciate that because here's this grand uh, master of Zen saying, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm not going to define uh, activity for you, but I am going to return you intend to see the truth. And so uh, how do we act out of intention? Just return to the intention. If we have um, too much of a roadmap, 
there's a lot of assumption that has to go into that. So the, the vulnerability of intending without, you could say intending without extending. Intend, but then don't reach out into the world out of that intentions. Be with the intention, look at what's showing up. And uh, in as far as you can endeavor to, as Sokazan says, don't do anything unless you have to. Mozuku. Mozuku bowing. <clears throat> um, the teaching don't do anything unless you have to seems like it's one of the few consistent um, off the cushion recommendations that Sokazan gives us. Is it important to also have an intention to see the truth off the cushion at some point? I think so. I think the intention, though, again, is not anything that's demanding you modify what you're doing. In, in a sense, don't do anything unless you have to gives you the pause to look more closely. So it, it to me, is directly tied into uh, don't do anything unless you have to intend to see the truth. Those are, are very closely tied. The way Sokazan said it early on was uh, hold your seat. He would often say to me, hold your seat. Um, I was, not to be too autobiographical, but I was 23, 24 years old, and the only other residents were in their 40s and 50s, and he had put me as the Eno. And so that was his constant refrain, just hold your seat, don't do anything, hold your seat. And again, it causes us or encourages us or invites us to pause long enough to look at the situation and see that if we don't have to do anything. It's okay to just receive, even if it's negativity that we're receiving. Milka. Milka Bowen, is there enough, is there ever enough meditation? And I'm thinking in terms of like daily practice when we're sitting and how, you know, we've got a schedule, but when when is it enough? That's very personal and situational because there may be weeks, months, or years where you're able to sit five, six hours a day. And there are times where you're hopeful to get in 30 minutes a day. You endeavor, you intend to get in 30 minutes a day. So I don't know that it can be prescribed, but again, when we are given that instruction, sit as much as you can, it, it, it sets up that tension, that expectation, that aspiration to succeed and you never really succeed because even when you go into solitary retreat maybe you go in for 10 days 20 days 30 days and you're sitting eight to ten hours a day and you get to the end of it you've not accomplished anything so did you sit enough or you go through a month where you're trying to just check in for 10 minutes a day with your form you're just trying to bow to the the altar take refuge and just sit down for five minutes before work and can you say that you didn't sit enough if that's what you're able to get in? So that's where I feel it has to be done very closely in tandem with the student-teacher relationship. That it's not so much that there's a trade-off of hours of sitting and the result. And that's not to say that sitting is not incredibly important and we shouldn't endeavor to increase it. But it's also the container in which that happens that's so valuable. The dialogue, the interaction around the teacher with the teacher around the sitting practice that helps us understand more deeply what it is we're even doing. Um, and it's talked about in a lot of different ways. So Kazan, and this is very situational, it's, it's directly to the student and can't really be taken out of context, but he said to me that some people need to sit on the cushion for an hour or two before they can practice Zazen for 10 minutes. 
and other people can sit down and immediately begin practicing Zazen. That is just one way of speaking about it. And that's not something to be applied universally, but it helps you see how situationally the practice is related to. Um, yeah. Neil Kabowing, how much attention should we give to the container that we've set up? Um, I think that that's a, a good question. When are you talking about if we set up a container for our practice saying, I'm going to sit from seven to eight in the morning? I think we should give it as much attention as we can without it becoming aggressive. And what I mean by that is that if you set an intention to hold a form, I'm going to sit for 30 minutes before work. I'm going to sit for two hours before work. I'll sit an hour before bed that we should endeavor to return to that every day or at whatever period we've set that up at. But we also don't want to become so aggressive with ourselves where we start to torture ourselves or begin to create an identity of an accomplishment. And so we return to the form. We continue to return to a form that we set up. Um, but those containers are, are really helpful in giving us something to relate to. What is the torture or accomplishment showing us? If Here's a biased statement. If not within the context of a container, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, meditation, teacher, I think it's just torture. I think we're just creating further confusion by layer after layer, creating an identity of someone who's so stoic and someone who's so uh, aggressive that they are going to accomplish something. But that aggression for a lot of us is very natural. So within the context of a student-teacher relationship, we can begin to have some curiosity around what is that impulse? What is that reactivity? What is that drive to accomplish? And so I think that can just, again, show us aspects of the mind that we lock down on. I feel that without the reference point of a teacher, though, that's much more difficult to see. And in my subjective experience, that is because the impulse to grasp at what supports our existing ideas is so strong. We rarely look into the areas that we are challenged by, or we rarely look at them in such a way that we look deeply at them. Whereas the teacher, again, can create a type of disruption that helps us look at the neurotic tendencies in a way that doesn't get rid of the grasping, but helps us see more clearly the way in which the grasping is occurring. Thank you. Senshu. Senshu Bowing. <clears throat> in the example we gave of a student needing to sit for an hour or two before before they might practice Zazen for 10 minutes. What's the difference between um, just sitting and Zazen bowing? And I, again, I tried to maybe overly preamble that because that was such a situational exchange I had with Sokazan because even the person who may have to sit for an hour, two hours before they're actually just observing or looking at what this is or whatever intention you might want to call it. That's completely appropriate. That can't be modified or interrupted um, or expedited. That's the, the precise ground in which they need to be functioning. So just contrasted, they're just contrasted. And I, I think that again, 
maybe it wouldn't be a great area to go into because it was such a situational thing that he was uh, pointing at with me. Uh, but again, I'm endeavoring, I will endeavor to respond to questions around that if there are some. Chodo. Chodo Belling, with that example from the master about, I don't tell you what to do, I just want you to see clearly. Sometimes the Sokazan does just tell us what to do. Yes. Is that still about seeing clearly? Yes. Yes, if it's from the teacher, it's always intended about helping the students see more clearly. We've talked a little bit about the three turnings of the wheel of the Dharma. And that first turning that the Buddha set forth in the Pali Canon, in the most traditional suttas, set up very strong guidelines in monastic discipline for the students. It provided the groundwork, and it's talked about sometimes that the second turning couldn't have uh, been made widely available early on because the foundation of discipline had to be there before you can start to move into what they call the emptiness teachings. So there are times where the teacher may give you very clear and direct instruction on how they would like to see something done. Um, but if you can relate to it as a teaching, it's all just showing you the mind. It's all just an invitation to look at the mind, whether it's just see clearly, or I'd like you to bow in this particular way, or I'd like you to conduct services in this particular way. Thank you. Yin Long. Yin Long Belling. Is there any difference between the intention to see clearly and the intention to be with all things? Fundamentally, I don't think so. I think they are both aspects of the path that are endeavoring to point at the same thing, which can't be you could say delineated. They're endeavoring us to look at a more, uh, so because I've been talking a little bit about primordial intelligence lately, and I think he described that as like a source that can't be defined. You know, there's not a, a source, source further back to then investigate that primordial intelligence. So endeavoring to see the truth or endeavoring to be with all things, I think are rooted very similarly. They're just different ways of talking about it. The way I understand it is that the bodhisattva's ability to be with all things is not separate from their ability to see clearly. So it's, again, the co-arising of wisdom and skillful means that you can't necessarily just see clearly if it's at the expense of others. You also can't really serve others if you're not clear about what's occurring. So I would say that those are, are intimately connected. In Yimong Bang. A lot of times there's a, uh, an invisible third whenever there's a pair. So we can talk about hot and cold, and that would be temperature or something like that. So it seems like these are a pair of concepts. Is there some kind of third that works as an umbrella or underneath them that you could look at? Hmm. I really like that question. I could make something up. We could talk about realization. Realization encompassing both wisdom and compassion uh the realization that that there are no separate solid identities everywhere and yet the inspiration to help invite others into that do you have one no. if you come up with one i'd be curious to hear if, if something shows up thank you <clears throat> navid Bowen. yes navid 
How can we find our true self not knowing clearly what we're looking for? Bowing. That's that's the most perfect and beautiful place to start. And, and Navid, I know you've you've been coming around for a long time and you probably heard some of my talks on the five houses of Zen. And um I, I just feel really inspired by those early classical Tang Dynasty Zen masters. And the one that, that reminds me of is uh, Tongshan Lianji, who is kind of the founder of our lineage of Saodong and Soto Zen. And his teacher said to him, not knowing is most intimate. And so I, I don't know that I can resolve what feels like a conundrum, and nor do I feel like it needs to be resolved. But it's in the very midst of that confusion or not knowing that we actually have the openness or the consideration to see what shows up in front of us. Whereas if we fixate on an idea or an identity of a true self, anytime you look at something like that, you have to ignore other things to maintain that. And so in that not knowing, while I think it's still an aspect of path, it's a, to me, a very strong relative expression of, of just how vast this is and the spaciousness of it. And it, it seems like very difficult to enjoy ourselves if we do know. It's in that not knowing when we're not struggling with it that things become much more workable because there's not a position to oppose anything else. That workability, again, though, is not excluding negativity. It's not a protection from the world. It's, it's a no longer separating from every quality, every energy, every texture that is arising. We just don't contrast it with our own position or preference. Thank you. Thank you, Navid. Mioka. Mioka bowing that uh, question that Nilong brought up. Um, it's got me curious. Can there be in that realization or however that shows up, can that area be too open? That that type of um, gradient seems to only arise from a position that gives the contrast to say too open, not open enough. We're, we are not looking for a quality or a texture. We are looking at an intention. So even the idea of openness or not knowing is, is an intention. It's not a location which we enter into. The relative experience of not knowing though is strong. It's, I think that you've been giving talks for a year now, year and a half, something like that. I imagine that there's some of that experience arising when you're giving talks. There's, there's kind of an openness or a fear. It may show up as fear or insecurity. I don't know for you. For me, that's some of the ways in which it shows up. And that's not a quality I create. It's a quality or something along those lines that Sokuzan reminds me of, not to abandon. So to just be in the midst of, of whatever's showing up. And when it changes, don't try to go back into what it was and don't look for what it's going to become. It's just being with it as it arises. Yokabang, what is the intention of not knowing? You just express something like that. But yeah, my, that's more my 
What I want to know is, yeah, what is that intention? To the, in, the intention of not knowing is to receive. Um, if you are fixated on something, if you are fixated on knowledge or position, it's very difficult to receive because you've already accumulated something. So it's it's like that image of the teacup already being full and then you're wanting more tea. Whereas the not knowing is more about receiving your world as it arises, receiving the teacher, receiving the teachings, receiving the Sangha, receiving consciousness as it continues to arise in all of its forms. But we can't just look to idealize it in that way. It's, it's whatever form it's showing up. And that may be the struggle. It may be the demand. It may be uh, the fear or the insecurity. And to look very closely at how we take what arises in consciousness and we try to get it to point to something because we want meaning. We want it to mean something. We want it to be tangible so that we can get a hold of our path. And we can endeavor or intend to just see it as it arises to not necessarily buy into that cycle of, of meaning. The way Sokazan has talked about that is the why because situation. We ask for why, then we get a because, and then why, and then because, and why, and because. And his question is what? Always, it's always what? Um, and always what can also sometimes be why or how. Thank you. The question around this isn't clear yet, but maybe it'll come up. When Sokazan talks about communicate, um, communication, almost always he talks about listening, but it seems like in the context of being a resident here, anytime communication is brought up, it's about sharing where you're at or why you're late or any of that kind of um, production. Is there a difference there when he's talking about communication in terms of being a resident? Um, practically, you could say so, but there's also a receiving that has to occur in the midst of that, which is our own elaborations around that. How irritating is it for you? There. Yeah. So what is that? Because nobody's taking that information saying, oh, Junshu is doing this. And maybe I'm just a really bad functionary. I never know where anybody's at. Everyone tells me where they're at and I have no idea where anyone's at at any time. So what is that irritation? So there's your reception. There's your receiving. I feel that another aspect of our communication is the intention to include others, to acknowledge our path, to acknowledge our vow in a lot of different situations. Um, that's, it can tell you it's, it's not, um, it's a little distasteful. We want to have some sort of territory that's, that's ours, but it's very difficult to be a bodhisattva and maintain too much territory. It's not that we go in and we tear it all apart, but we may have to look at how our vow challenges us. Our vow creates discomfort that we wouldn't necessarily have to relate to if we could just isolate ourselves in a more traditional way. So the reception of that communication is just noticing how much preference remains and knowing that it's not a matter of living up to an ideal or getting rid of the preference. I would say of all the residents that have come through here, which is several dozen, 
the two things that are struggled with most um, are communication and book study. <laughs> Those two are just something is really abrasive about book study and communication. And so that probably is a good indicator of why those are so important for us to return to, not out of aggressive aggression, not maintaining it, but to continue to return to it as we're able to. Now that I don't have to do that, <laughs> since I don't technically live here anymore, um, Am I missing an opportunity to practice or am I missing something? No, I don't think we can evaluate containers. It's, it's, if somebody's living here, it's because they need to live here and train in this way. I don't know that it should be held up as like the gold standard because everyone's relating the practice in an incredibly intimate way that may look nothing like one another. There's 48 people joining us on Zoom today and there's a tremendous richness in the practice that shows up on Zoom. And is anybody um, not practicing correctly or fully because they're, you know, in Brooklyn or Florida or Kentucky or Toronto or Iran? Uh, no, no, there's, there's so much support that is provided just by showing up. And I think, again, that richness is amplified because of the relationship to a teacher. And so... You have to give the teacher the benefit of the doubt. You can pose those questions to the teacher. And on occasion, he may say, you should get here. And I think I would say that for anyone joining us online, if the means to be here are possible for a visit to have some face-to-face, -face, please come visit us. Come, come stay a few days. Come stay a week. Come stay a month or a year. Um, but if that's not possible, just return to those vows. Return to those intentions, the refuge vows. Have you done enough? <laughs> Soto, taking off the glasses, my bad. <laughs> Further questions? Go ahead, Jishin. Jishin Bowing. <clears throat> what is being in not knowing and not want or demand to know? Bowing. It's uh, as simply as possible to just see the demand to know. I think that that's part of why we may have to be reminded of that, that it's not about living up to something. And that's why um, there's never, I've, I think Sokazan had me give my first talk maybe a year into being here. And that was actually, he had open heart surgery within the first six months of me being here. And so he had me give a very unqualified Dharma talk. I'm still giving unqualified Dharma talks, but um, there's never been a time where I don't return to him after talk and say, can you give me some feedback? Is there anything you noticed? Is there any things I can look more closely at? So just notice the desire to know. And uh, when the opportunity arises, which I know it does for you for Dokusan, ask for that feedback. A lot of the feedback he's had for me is the way I flail my arms sometimes. Um, this is, I had this mudra for, I still do it a little bit. I don't know what it is. It's just this very weird, I don't know what, it's like a yo-yo. I've said that before. Or the way in which I enunciate occasionally. Rarely 
does he have anything to say about the content of my talk in this? As far as I understand, rarely does he interfere with the content of any of his students' talks, but just returns us to our intention. Thank you. Um, what would be the difference between wanting to know and not wanting to know while being it in not knowing? Knowing. There's not a lot of difference. Um, and that's why neither one of them should be aspired towards or away from because if you, if you try to create one at the expense of another, it's still trying to maintain something that's unreal. So that's why we return to an intention endeavor to not come to any conclusions while simultaneously being aware of the conclusions that spontaneously arise. We endeavor not to accomplish anything and at the same time we notice the impulse to accomplish in a traditional sense. So that teaching has become more and more important and I think central for so many of us in the teaching of intention. And why that's so important is because intention doesn't make any demands if we relate to it in the way that it's being presented. It's very soft, and at the same time, it can be very clear. Endeavor to see the truth, intend to see the truth, intend to be of benefit to others. How do we do that? I don't know. So what do we do? Continue to look at that not knowing. Adriana had a question. Is taking the vow to be with all things a declaration of faith or conversion to Buddhism? I don't think so. I don't, I don't know. For some people, that works differently, converting to Buddhism or Sokazan's used the word of card-carrying Buddhist. I don't think he actually has a card, but he's used that on several occasions. Um, you formalize your commitment to the path. You formalize refuge. You formalize the Bodhisattva vow. You formalize the 10 grave precepts. So you could say there's a formal acknowledgement to follow the Buddha's Dharma. Um, faith is something that's talked about in some cases traditionally. Uh, the poem I think of is So Sounds uh, Faith Mind, uh, the Sin Sin Ming. So sometimes it's translated that way, but the way Sokazan talks about that, and um, if you're writing it down, Red Pine has a wonderful translation, Shin uh, Shin uh, Ming, H-S-I-N, H-S-I-N, M-I-N-G. Robert Clark also had a nice one. They're very short. But Sokazan talks about as giving something the benefit of the doubt. You don't know. You don't know what it is. You're you're stepping into an arena. How could you even fathom saving all beings? What is there to be saved? And yet we have the intention to do so. So there's some consideration that there is basic goodness. There's some consideration that our uh, root situation is Buddha nature. But we don't know that. So there's some benefit of the doubt or you could say faith involved in that. But we just have to be careful that it doesn't solidify so much that it replaces our own intelligence with an idea of what that means. And so we return to the intention. Uh, the intention is not swamped by faith. The intention is not swamped by ideals. It's just a very simple touchstone to return to. It's difficult to do that on your own. Adriana bowing. I can hear you. Oh, great. <laughs> um. Is it necessary to have faith? Bowing. Not necessary, no. I think that, again, it, it may be an aspect of the path, depending on the individual. But I don't know what you would have faith in. 
I mean, the path, yes, there's, there's path, there's inspiration, there's an intention to work with us. You have faith in your teacher that they're, they're have, they have the insight to point you directly at what this is, or you have some sort of faith that this practice of meditation is, is helping you live a more direct and sane and open life. But again, it's just a quality of the path. And we talk about that as, uh, as we're still working, we're still taking this step by step. When we read about fruition, I don't know that there'd be anything to have faith in. There's not some um, central, discrete source of wisdom or goodness that you can't, you can't really discern that from anything else. So I would say individually, you may work with that term faith, but I know it's not one that Sokazan particularly um, promotes. It's one that, that, again, has not necessarily shown up strongly for me. Go ahead. One more. Yes. Um, yes. Is it okay to not have faith, to be without faith? It is okay to be or show up in whatever way you're showing up, as long as, and not even as long as, I should just say full stop, whatever shows up is completely appropriate. To be on the path, we just give it our attention. And so belief and disbelief is, is the, the materials are the same. It's the same trap, belief and disbelief. So atheism, theism, it's taking something to be the truth without really any backup or without any evidence. And so the awareness itself doesn't have an agenda. The awareness is to just see more clearly. So you don't have faith, we're aware of that. Or you find yourself just having a, an emotional connection or a strong like belief or devotion that's also to be included. Um, the need to modify anything is, is really minimal. We can modify the body by holding still and upright and keeping the senses open. There's a modification, but it's, it's pretty simple. Ozuku. Ozuku Belling, I'm still thinking about your comment about it being two hours before before some practitioner might start doing zazen. I've heard Sokazan respond that, to a question that uh, daydreaming is still shikantaza. Yes. So, still, so what, what is what is not doing zazen? <laughs> you can't not do zazen. You got me. I, you can argue with him. He's He said it, not me. <laughs> I think that's, if you can see how profoundly rich that exchange is and how the consistency is not there for us to rely upon. I don't know how to describe that, but I can certainly look at the way in which in any one of us can, the contrast of practice over time. There's nothing to be done with that, but how that triggers us, how that evokes insecurity or like what ifs or what about or didn't you like that kind of impulse uh, that's where the richness of the teaching is it's not that that ever needs to resolve or make sense the teachings don't ever need to make sense for us to see our mind we study something very complicated like for some of us it's very complicated for me it is dogen dogen is complicated it's it's um, completely layered with imagery and symbolism and things I don't quite understand, but my ability to train my mind studying that is not limited to understanding it. It's how it shows preference, how it points that positionality that's so rich. 
Sokazan's teachings do that all the time because while some things are so consistent, there are times where you have no idea what he's talking about or where he's coming from. And that desire, that impulse to understand it kind of blows the humor out of the water and we become very urgent or frantic about it. So I don't, I don't have a resolution for that. I just, at the moment when he said that to me, I really appreciated that. It also encouraged me at the time to just sit down for five minutes if that's all I could get. And I think that's where, this was a long time ago, I think some of the conversation was coming out of, I felt like if I couldn't sit for an hour or two that I probably shouldn't sit. And he was saying, no, if you can sit down for five minutes or 10 minutes, do that. Thank you. You home bowing. Yes. I jump on late. Uh, I did not hear the question, but the answer you mentioned uh, was something like accumul accumulated knowledge we have could be uh, could block the way we see things uh, clearly. Do you are you referring to the fixed uh, fixed the mind? To, to fixation? Yes. Yes. Yes, I am. Um, so if I want to ask, even though you answered the fixed uh, mind, but how can we skillfully use our intelligence, you know, the learning that we have been accumulated on this path? Sorry. I think that we can use what we've learned to, to look more closely at what is occurring, that some of those concepts and it's going to be individual some people really resonate with the five skandhas form feeling perception concept and consciousness then you can look at any compounded phenomena anything that shows up as discrete and you could reflect on what does it mean for that to be form feeling perception concept and consciousness or a really simple one would be the three poisons to just reflect on the way in which passion aggression and ignorance shows up so we're not doing away with conceptual knowledge, but we also don't want to replace our experience with a concept. So we use the concepts to look. We use the concepts as, as a, a way to look more closely, not as a way to substitute experience. And that's something that I think the Sangha helps us do. And that's something if you go through the teachings, they do by kind of yanking things out from underneath you. And the teacher certainly does that may give you something to study and then may flip it on its head for you. Thank you, Bowie. Thank you. Are there any other questions this morning? Shoto? Adriana. Thank you, Adriana Bowie. Um, I was thinking about Soko-san going into surgery. Yes. Um, because I want to, uh, I'm. I have a surgery scheduled coming up soon on the nineteenth uh, for my knee to repair a ligament, um, uh, and I'm a little bit scared. So I was going to talk to him <laughs> about that fear. So I wondered if 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 you could say anything about that, just about the fear. Sure, I would say you should talk to him. <laughs> um, I. I feel, Sokazan was uh, planning to give this talk from his hospital bed today. Yeah. And I feel that one of the only reasons he may not have is just that the influx of nurses coming and going and people checking his vitals. So his inspiration to respond to questions has, uh, I've never seen it diminish. So that would be my starting point. Um, 
The second thing I would say is seeing if we can't, you can't uh, look at the fear's texture, that there's flashing into the texture of what is that. So oftentimes there's the elaboration of the consequences of our fear or who is it that's afraid. Um, but the foundation again comes back to the sitting practice of meditation, just sitting down and being with whatever arises. Now you may sit down and the fear may vanish, which is interesting. You don't need to crank up the fear to work with it because what we're working with doesn't discriminate the content. So if you sit down to meditate and you find that it feels really good, uh, just, just do that. Just feel that that's the awareness. And you get off the cushion and all of a sudden the fear skyrockets and explodes. Um, then we endeavor to receive it in that context. But I've always appreciated that encouragement from Sokazan is that you don't need to antagonize anything into your practice. That what is being trained does not need the specific material to see it clearly. That if we're training the awareness to see clearly, that has nothing to do with the content that it's seeing. It's just the awareness itself. So I, perhaps that's helpful, perhaps not. But um, yeah, I would reach out and see if, you know, you could get five or 10 minutes to talk to Sokazan and I know you feel a, a strong connection to him. Any other questions this morning? Shoto. Shoto Bowling. How does the student-teacher relationship show up with, like, I'm thinking of you, you're not my formal teacher, but you are a teacher. How, what is this student-teacher relationship? It's probably um, simpler, it's functional, that you consider what I have to say. And the other thing about when I teach that I think has been helpful in talking to Sokazan with is that the value in me sitting up here has nothing to do with what I'm communicating. That for some people, it may just be the opportunity to see the tremendous irritation that I am not their teacher or that I am not qualified to give this talk, whatever the elaboration is, we don't acknowledge that opportunity to see positionality. We just, we get in a routine. Whereas the intimacy that you share with Sokazan is a heart connection. And there's no replacing that. You can't just substitute teacher for teacher. That's not how that works. Although you may go to somebody, you may go to a bhikkhu and say, I want to learn about the vinaya. So information, or you may go to, you know, any number of scholars, Bill Waldron and say, I'd really like to know more about the evolution of the eight consciousnesses. And he could tell you about that. But that heart connection is pretty important and so personal and shows up very differently. So there's no real replacing that. But the form is the, the power here, the form of returning, considering and just noticing what arises. All of our forms provide that opportunity to just notice what arises in the mind, the, the fixation, the passion, aggression, the ignorance. So it's not a shortcoming if we can't have a heart connection with you or... I don't have a heart. <laughs> yeah, it'd be hard to have a heart connection with me. <laughs> no, it's not a shortcoming at all. And that's why I think sometimes it's good that it is a disruption from routine. It helps us look at that. Just like when we have somebody else come and teach here, you have somebody introdu introducing a brand new vocabulary around the Dharma. And we get so caught up on how the Dharma is presented. We don't, we don't see the essence of what is being presented. So 
We had a wonderful talk a few months ago from Nenzen, who's a, a guiding teacher at Jokoji. And I thought that was just wonderful to hear another way in which people are working with the Dharma that's presented in a way that's very different from the way we're used to presenting it. And Sokozan has given me that encouragement too, is don't try to do what he's doing. And I'm grateful for that because I, I've not, never met anyone that could do what Sokozan's doing. Um, so we do what we're doing. We see what we see. Yes. On Friday, uh, we discussed impulse and uh, primordial intelligence. And we also talk about the choice, choicelessness. And I want to ask a question, especially as a parent, not just as a parent, just like if something happened to a close family, family member, for example, could be, uh, could be some harms. How can we not blame others? Fine. You may have to. Again, we can't set up a standard of you can never do this and you're a bad person for doing it. The simpler we can relate to it, the better, meaning that the blame may show up impulsively. You can't help it. But we may be able to not hook up, as Sokazan says, not hook up the vocal cords. So we may not be able to create it into a, an external situation where you're actually arguing or, or yelling or condescending towards somebody. Um, so to whatever extent that elaborates the blame, that's the extent to which we see it. And just be careful. You have to have some generosity with yourself that you're not be going to be able to just cut some imaginary cord and that just stops. So to be generous and giving your attention to the way in which it shows up, blame is very conditioned. And so it's pretty strong. So we just we just look at it. Uh, when you mentioned that for uh, you know somehow in the process, even though there's a less uh, production or outflow, when I'm able to observe more, I feel like there's still a sense of tolerance. I'm I'm tolerating people's their their behaviors or whatever. So that really somehow just is I cannot tolerate I feel like anymore but anyway I just feel like there's a sense of tolerance there if you could have some comments that would be wonderful thank you Bali. They're, they're the ones that you've heard over and over that, that the way in which you're showing up is the way in which you need to see it if you feel like you're you're losing patience or you can't tolerate something anymore, then, then endeavor to see it in that form. If you feel like you're just tolerating it, but be careful the way in which we repeat stories. The language is important. And that's something that we hear Sokazan talk about, the way in which we label things or we retell and retell and retell and retell a story. I can't do this. I can't tolerate it. I can't do this. Or just keep tolerating it. Just keep tolerating it. Uh, I really like the idea of going into texture that when we sit down, all of those experiences, most of them seem to have a visceral quality where you actually can feel the constriction in the body or the fluttering in the stomach or the tightness in the shoulder. So you can flash into some of those textures, which are, you could say a little bit below the storyline without getting rid of the storyline. So if, if it's showing up, as Sokazana said, if it's showing up, it has a right to be there. 
that's that's your bodhisattva vow. It's, it's not pleasant. It's a lot easier if someone could just prescribe antidotes for all of this. To me, if there is an antidote, it is the seeing clearly, which is what we return to. It is the awareness itself. It's not the production of any particular enlightened activity. That's very helpful, Bowie. Thank you. Is there a final question this morning, this afternoon now? Yun Bowie, is it necessary to have a living guru throughout our life? No, I don't think so. I think most well, Sokazan is an example. He's talked about how it was after Coben passed that he saw who Coben was or saw what that was. I think that if we can return to those teachings, which to me have been firmly embedded. For most of us, I'm not saying we have profound clarity around practice, but we're pretty clear about practice. We know how to sit down. We know how to return to that intention. And we are going to intend to do that for the rest of our lives, whether anything arises out of it or not. And so in that sense, I don't think we have to go searching. And he's also said, maybe you do. Maybe if you do, you won't be able to help it. It's like, maybe he didn't need another teacher other than, than Trungpa Rinpoche, but he collided with Kobanchino Roshi and there was no choice. It wasn't a searching. So just noticing the insecurity around, what if I don't have enough? No, you, you have enough. You have everything. One teaching, one talk, there's the totality of it. Reading through the meditation primer, just read one of those the rest of your life. I think it's there. I feel uh, grateful. There's a lot of material we can return to, and we can return to uh, the Sangha as well. So we um, can close. Before we do... For those of you that joined late, I just wanted to again say that Sokazan is, is okay. He is at Bronson Borges Hospital in Kalamazoo. He's going to be going in for a heart cath tomorrow morning, so he's going to be overnight. And I do feel like it would be um, appropriate or helpful maybe to offer a supplication for Sokazan's long life to end our practice today before the dedication of merit. So um, let's let's do that. can do it from right here. Namo de Kobanchino Roshi in the Soto Zen lineage, Chogyam Trunpa Rinpoche in the Karmakagi lineage, the order of immediate light, Queen Srimala and the mothers of wisdom, all Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, ancestors and heirs, and the masters of the three times. You are the Vajra like awareness, manifest for all beings, as a mountain, as the Garuda, outrageous and inscrutable. May that mountain, patient and immovable, be a platform for Buddha activity to flourish in all directions and times. Please remain so that we may awaken into true devotion and fulfill our vow to liberate all sentient beings. Om Ah Om Vajra Guru Padma Siddhi Thank you for joining us. Thank you for sharing your practice with us today. We'll stand and dedicate the merit. I'd like to start by thanking you for being here. As Sokazan often does, just let you know that we really appreciate all the support you show through your contributions and your participation. There's a great deal, and I mean a great deal, that goes into keeping this functioning, operating up and running, just being able to continue to make these teachings available, let alone the maintenance of the building. So anything you can offer is always greatly received and appreciated.
And again, if uh, nothing else, your, your greatest gift is your participation in these teachings and practices.